Let's continue to worship God through the study of His Word. If you, I want to invite you, if you've got a Bible, to go ahead and turn to the passage that was just read, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to continue in our study of the book of 1 Corinthians. If we haven't met, my name is Shane, and while you're turning there, we'll let you in a little bit uh, in my life and the life of my family. We like to uh, play a lot of games at the Shaddix household, and one of the ones that is, uh, comes up most frequently is... Uh, this game that begins with, uh, Daddy, do the funny thing. And I have to say, you have to be more specific. There are so many funny things that I do. Uh, and then it becomes clear that the, the thing that my daughter wants is to play this game uh, where the, the main feature of this game is she gives me instructions that I uh, uh, over-interpret or I misinterpret and misapply. And so it goes like this. Usually she stands up on the couch and I'm looking at her like this. And, and what she's wanting to do is she's wanting to jump on my back. And so she says, Daddy, turn around. And so I do this right here. Uh, and she says, no, 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 uh, don't, don't turn all the way around. Uh, turn around and, and face the other way. And so I do this right here. Uh, and she's like, no, 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 come back and face me. And so I do this right here. And, and we, we just go on and on and around and around uh, where she gives me instructions and I basically find some creative way to misunderstand, misapply, mis, uh, 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 kind of enact whatever instruct instruction she's giving me. And, and we could, it could go on for hours. At some point I have to, I have to cut it out. And, and I, I run out of ways to, uh, to kind of uh, do, it, do it poorly. Uh, it reminds me uh, maybe a, an, another example of this going on is the books that uh, many of you kids are probably uh, reading right now. I know many of us read when we were growing up. Amelia Bedelia books. You guys know what I'm talking about? Amelia Bedelia. She had, she had one shtick in the Amelia Bedelia books, which is hard for me to, I got to stop saying it, but this, this girl, uh, she constantly misunderstands and misapplies the instructions of her boss. She's basically a maid in this large house, and the, the owner of the house, you know, is going to work or is going away on vacation and gives Amelia a, a list of things to do, and she, she always does them incorrectly. Uh, she was told to draw the drapes, and so instead of opening the drapes so the window is, you know, the light can come in, she sits down with a pad and a paper, and a, uh, sorry, and, and a pencil, and, and she draws the drapes. She was told to scatter flowers throughout the house and to decorate, and instead of putting out pots of flowers throughout the house, she takes flower petals and throws them everywhere, and so they come home and like, why are there flowers everywhere? She said, you told me to scatter the flowers. Instead of sowing seeds uh, by casting seed on, on dirt, uh, so the seeds can grow. She takes the seeds and she takes a needle and thread and she sews a necklace of the, uh, the, the seeds together. And on and on we could go with the ways that she was given instructions. She received the instructions but then misapplied them. My last example and perhaps my favorite is the, uh, a couple years ago there was a uh, commercial for, I think, I think it was Domino's. It doesn't really matter. It wasn't a successful commercial apparently. Uh, but uh, the, the, the whole idea was there are no rules. And so this guy walks in and, and says, you know, can I do, you know, X, Y, Z on my paper, and they, on, my, on my pizza, and they say, sir, there are no rules. He said, there are no rules, and he starts taking off his shirt, and he says, sir, you can put your shirt back on. He's like, there's one rule. Okay, you know, so he takes this, there are no rules, and misapplies it to, for some reason he wanted to take off his shirt. Uh, you, you get the idea. Sometimes you can give a set of instructions, someone can take them, and go in a direction that you really don't intend them to, to go in. I think something like that is, is the best way to understand what's going on in 1 Corinthians uh, 4 here. So if you've been with our study, it's, it's actually important to, to know where we've come. 
The, the problem in the Corinthian church is they are uh, uh, experiencing a severe degree of division because the believers are finding and accruing for themselves different leaders to where they're, they're building factions. And in 1 Corinthians 1, we get the picture here. One is saying, I follow Paul. Another, somebody else is saying, I follow Apollo. Somebody else is following, I follow, uh, saying, I follow Cephas or Peter. And then another is saying, I follow Christ. You've got different people who are forming camps within the church, and they are competing and measuring one another up against these different leaders and just finding their tribe and that kind of thing. And Paul is spending the really the first, uh, uh, every, where we've been up to this point in the book, the first three or four chapters, trying to correct and rebuke them for this, uh, uh, this error that they are, are giving themselves over to primarily, and, and the consistent thread is, is uh, your factionalism undercuts the very logic of the gospel. It undercuts the very logic of the gospel because what you are trying to do is you are trying to find different ways that people are, are sufficient. They are greater than. They are the ones who are going to rescue. They're going to be the ones who make the church successful and they make the kingdom advance. And so you're trying to find these different leaders who are going, you can kind of identify yourself with both to give yourself a sense of importance and because you think that's how the work of the kingdom of God is going to be accomplished. And you need to understand, this is what Paul is trying to say, you need to understand the gospel doesn't work that way. The way that the gospel works is it, it is a message about a crucified Savior. It is the message of how God becomes man and instead of, uh, of riding in kind of on a, on a white horse and, and just destroying all of his enemies, he comes as a servant who lays his life down for the sins of the whole world so that he can rescue his enemies. That is the message of the gospel that is, is under, undergirding everything that's come so far. Is, is Paul is saying the logic of the gospel flips human reason and wisdom on its head, and it comes to those who are ready to receive it as incredible wisdom from God. But to somebody who doesn't have the Spirit of God, who's not ready to receive it, that sounds just downright silly. It, obviously, the way for us to win is by to, to find the right leader, to, to build the right tribe, to, to get the right strategy. Surely that's how God's kingdom is going to advance, right? And, and he says, that's what you're doing by building these factions. But you need to understand, it is an anti-gospel way of going about the community of faith. And so over and over again, he is, is trying to show them that their factionalism is contrary to the message of the gospel. And if you're not a Christian this morning, we just want you, that to be kind of the loudest thing that you hear from us is not that this is a group of people who have it all together or going to save the world or anything like that. Rather, Imago Dei Church is filled with people who have received a message, and that message is that we could not save ourselves, but a loving and holy God has done everything for us. He is the one who has rescued us. He is the one who has done the work for us. We are not here to self-promote. We are not here to build tribes. What we are here to do is respond to the work of God in our lives. And so what's happening in the Corinthian church is always a danger for us as well in that we forget the logic of that gospel and instead say we got to take things into our own hands. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, what he does is he teases that principle out to say, you guys think way too much of yourselves and of your leaders, and you think way too little of God who is doing the work. He, he goes on an effort to, to kind of bring their view of their leaders down, which is one of the reasons he says, uh, what, you're saying I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. 
What is Paul? What is Apollos? And he identifies them as servants of God, not the ones who do the work, not the ones who get it done. God is the one who gets it done. These leaders are just instruments in God's hands. And what I think is going on in chapter 4 is that Paul is anticipating their misapplication of that. He's anticipating the fact that he, they're saying, uh, uh, well, I guess if our leaders are not that big a deal, then we can uh, you know, kind of do whatever we want or we can choose the ones we like or something like that. And Paul then has to recognize, no, 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 don't, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There is a place for godly, cross-centered, gospel-shaped ministry in your lives. Don't just disregard it. And he needs to do that because these Corinthians are still inclined to weigh human things way more than divine and spiritual things. And the reality is when Paul is weighed up against these kind of other leaders, he's just not that impressive. He is very much in risk of being, at risk of being discarded. He is very much at risk of being the one who is uh, kind of ignored. And he's not trying to protect his ministry for his own sake. He's trying to protect his ministry because he's saying, my ministry is the one that looks like the cross we preach. My ministry is the one that looks like this gospel that we proclaim. Don't, get, don't, don't sideline what I'm saying here. This ministry is actually for you and for your good, and it looks like Christ. So that's what he's going to do in the course of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, is he's going to explain to them kind of the proper role of, of cross-shaped ministry. He's going to show them, here, here is what this gospel-shaped ministry is and ought to look like in your lives. And so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to walk through this text, and we're going to identify four features of Paul's cross-shaped ministry, a, a ministry that looks like the gospel of Jesus Christ in the way he serves God for the good of the Corinthian Christians. And then as he goes, what he's going to do is say, because my ministry looks like this, this is your response to it. And so uh, as we do this, I just want to invite you to, to consider a couple of things with me. One is, when we, when we identify each of these features of cross-shaped ministry, you should ask yourself, how is it that I can similarly embody this kind of cross-shaped ministry? You don't have to be in vocational ministry, professional ministry. You don't have to be a pastor. If you have the Spirit of God, His desire is to work with you as a minister of His gospel in some way. And as we talked about last week, any ministry that is going to do any anything in the kingdom, it is going to be consistent with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we can look at Paul's ministry that is shaped by the gospel, and we can say, okay, how do we embody that same ministry? But then there's another application for us, and that is how do we rightly respond when we are on the receiving end of a cross-shaped ministry? If we're in the Corinthians' shoes, and we are receiving godly leadership from someone like Paul, how, what, what does it look like for us to receive and respond to that? So let's walk through the text and just identify these features of a cross-shaped ministry. The first one is a cross-shaped ministry is a stewardship from God. It's a stewardship from God. Verse 1 says, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. You have here two metaphors that are getting at the essence of this godly leadership. There's a, he calls himself a servant of Christ, which he's already done in chapter 3, verse 5. But then he also introduces this idea of a stewardship of the mysteries of God. He focuses really in the following verses on that idea of stewardship because it gets to the idea of accountability. 
If you're not familiar with the, the concept of a steward, the, the implication is there is someone who is in, uh, in authority who entrusts to somebody else a responsibility to now take this thing that is given to them and, and use it faithfully. If you're familiar with the Bible, you might be familiar with the, uh, the story of the talents where the master gives to his servants various talents and says, here, go use these for, for my purposes. And some of, the ta- uh, uh, some of the servants get five, some of them get three, some of them get one. They get different amounts, but the thing that they are judged on is whether or not they are faithful with what they have received. So much so that when the master comes back, he's not interested necessarily with the quantity. He's interested on, did you steward it well? Did you use it for the purpose that I gave it to you? Paul is here recognizing that he is a steward of the mysteries of God. As an apostle, he has received from God a stewardship of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he knows that as a steward, he has received something and he will be judged. That's exactly what he says here in verse 2. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. There's one feature of every steward. They are going to be asked, were you faithful with what was entrusted to you? Now the question then becomes, okay, if, if I know I'm going to be judged, I know I'm going to be assessed for whether or not I am faithful, if I know that there is accountability, who is it that gets to decide? And what Paul is trying to emphasize here is that he, he knows he is going to be accountable for his stewardship but he's not accountable to the Corinthians. He's not actually accountable to the Corinthians. Look what he says in verse 3. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. He says, one of the reasons that my ministry isn't, doesn't look like all this impressive stuff that you want is because I'm not here to serve you. I'm here to serve someone else. I'm not here to be judged by you whether or not you like this ministry. I'm here to be judged by the one who sent me. So it's not, he's not here there to, to, to satisfy all the longings and the cravings of the Corinthians. Notice he goes even farther to, to say that he's not even necessarily he, uh, trying to satisfy himself. In verse 5, he picks up, In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. He basically says, okay, well, if, if in my ministry I'm not necessarily trying to, to please and satisfy the longings and the cravings of the Corinthians, maybe it's sufficient for Paul that he's there just to, 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 to minister with a clear conscience. As long as he feels good about what he's doing, is that, is that enough? And Paul says, well, well, I'm glad that I have a clear conscience, right? I don't, I don't, I'm not aware of anything against myself. I'm not, I don't feel guilty with how I'm going about this. But is that enough for Paul? It's not, is it? He says, I don't judge myself. I'm not aware of anything against me. But that is not the point. He lands it there with, it's the Lord who judges. He says that as a steward, his responsibility is singular. It is, it is a laser-like focus on pleasing the one who gave him the task. This is exactly what Paul would say to a young pastor named Timothy he would give to Timothy a couple of analogies to, uh, to encourage him in the work in, uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 2. In that chapter, he tells Timothy, you know what, you know, a pastor or a minister is kind of like, it's kind of like an athlete. You've got you to run according to the rules. And he says, 
The pastor or the minister is also kind of like a farmer. You've got you to work hard. But the third analogy he gives is a pastor or a minister is kind of like a soldier. And if you're a soldier, you really have one goal. It's to please your commanding officer. That's the only thing you're, you're there to do. If you are, if you are a, a, a soldier, if you're an officer in the army, you, you have one goal. It is to please the one who is above you. So that's, that's what ministry is like. The, the Corinthians were clamoring for all kinds of things. They wanted Paul's ministry to look like all kinds of stuff. And he said, I am a steward of the mysteries of God. I will be judged. But just understand, I'm not here to please you. I'm not even really here to please myself. And that's just, such a, just that, that, that idea of, of satisfying our own expectations is so... Is so uh, it's a good warning and caution to us, especially in an age and a context where the supreme value is, is authenticity. The most, thing, the, the most uh, kind of loving, most important thing you can do is be true to yourself. You've got to feel good about who you are and what you're doing and how you're following Jesus and all that kind of stuff. And Paul is sitting here saying, authenticity to myself is not the highest good. The highest good is pleasing the one who entrusted me with this stewardship. He recognizes, he recognizes that his is a ministry that is a stewardship from God for the good of the Corinthians. And so the implication for the Corinthians is what? It's that they should not stand in judgment over Paul for the way he goes about his ministry. He's not, he's not there to please them. He's there to please the Lord. So he tells them in verse 5, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from the Lord. This is a word of both instruction and a word of warning for for the Corinthians. The the instruction is don't let God do the judging. He is the one who will assess whether or not Paul is being faithful or anybody else. Also, be aware he's actually going to be better at it than you are. Notice what he says there. When God shows up, he's not just going to look at the things he's done. He's going to judge the purposes of the heart. Do you feel like you're able to judge the purposes of Paul's heart? Do you feel like you're able to judge the purposes of one another's heart? He says, be careful in standing in judgment over one another in their faithfulness. You are not the judge. It is not your job to be the assessor of their hearts. But the Lord is going to come do that. He's going to do it perfectly. But it's also a word of, of, word of warning. Just as God sees Paul's heart, he also sees theirs. He knows what they want. He knows what they long for. He knows what they're chasing after. And Paul is by implication saying, look, I have a stewardship from God. I've got to please him. What about you? You have a stewardship from the Lord. Are you set on pleasing him, working and living in a way that is consistent with his gospel? So the first feature of of Paul's cross-shaped ministry is he recognizes it's a stewardship from God. It's not his own. He's not there to please everybody else. He's not even there just to to please his own expectations. He is there ultimately to please the one who entrusted him. The second thing, the second feature here is that Paul's Paul's, uh, ministry, his cross-shaped ministry, is, is a ministry of sacrifice for others' good. It's a ministry of sacrifice Paul now turns to address head-on the Corinthians' kind of root problem. Their main problem throughout this whole conflict is pride. 
They wanted to think highly of themselves. They wanted to imagine that they bring a lot to the table, that God is lucky to have them on their team, and if they can just be let loose, they can run and they can make something happen. But it's that pride that got them into this mess, acquiring leaders for themselves who would make them feel special, who would give them a proper status and prestige. And Paul is saying, you you are finding too much value and pride in your own self. You can see it a couple of times in in this passage. If you see in verse 6, he he says that they are puffed up. In verse 7, he says that they are boasting. And those things go in direct contradiction to what Paul has been saying throughout the book of 1 Corinthians up to this point. If you want to flip back, you can just see in chapter 1, verse 29, Given the shape of the gospel, he says that God chose to save those who are weak in the eyes of the world so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. Isn't that crazy? The shape of the gospel itself, the very, the very texture of it is designed so that you can not boast. And so these Christians, they get the gospel, they form a church, and you know what they start doing? Boasting. You see it again in verse 31 of chapter 1, quoting Jeremiah chapter 9. He says, let the one who boasts not boast in themselves, but boast in the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 21, he goes directly to the heart of the matter. He says, let no one boast in men. Don't boast in yourself. Don't boast in your leaders. These things are out of step with the gospel. They are contrary to the very shape of the gospel. See what he says in, uh, jump back to chapter 4. You can see it in in verse 6. He says, I've applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. That these things that he's talking about there in verse 6, the things that he's applying to Apollos and to himself, it's basically everything he's been talking about in chapters 1 through 3. When he's talking about faithfulness to God, faithfulness to the gospel, when he's talking about a a, a faithful ministry, he's saying, I'm hanging this over, I'm applying it to to the ministry context so that you can see I'm not boasting, Apollos isn't boasting, but we're trying to be an example so that you can learn for you not to boast. He says that, that, that the very boasting itself should create a kind of dissonance in your hearts. Um, you, you ever uh, uh, have something that's just a, it's just a category error? It doesn't make sense. You can't answer the question, uh, you know, can God make a rock so big that he can't push it or something like that or can't lift it? You're just like, these things don't make sense. When I was growing up, some of you guys might be familiar, there was a song, I think it was by Chris Rice, called Smell the Color Nine. You guys know what I'm talking about? Any, like, you know, CCM fans from the late 90s? Uh, like, three of you guys. Okay, that doesn't really matter. The, 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 it's not a great song. Uh, the, the point, though, uh, actually, I don't even remember what the, the point of the, the song is, but the, cat- the, the, the title is interesting. Uh, something about smelling the color nine, right? Smell, you can't smell a color. You can't smell a number. No, nine is not a color. And so you're supposed to, you know, this doesn't make sense, right? It, it's, it's, it's gibberish. It's nonsense, Paul's saying that's, that's what you're doing when it comes to the gospel. The logic of the gospel is that you, you bring nothing to the table. That I bring nothing to the table. 
And I'm trying to show you in my own life and ministry, and I'm trying to show you in Apollos' life and ministry, that there is no room for boasting in this gospel ministry. There is no space for it. I'm trying to lay it out there for you so that you can, you can kind of see. I'm holding it up so that the Corinthians can be like, oh. So when we're trying to like puff ourselves up, that just, it's turning the logic of the gospel on its head. And he wants the Corinthians to see and to, to repent and to, to provide some correction there. But they do not see it. He wants them to, he says, not go beyond what is written in terms of not boasting. He wants them to, to not be puffed up because it, it's, a, it's a cancer in their heart when it comes to understanding and believing and living out the gospel. Look what he says in verse 7. He says, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The, the, the who sees anything different in you is, is uh, maybe best summarized as almost like, do you think you're special? Like, I've shown you how the gospel shapes my ministry. I've shown you how the gospel shapes Apollos' ministry. I've shown you how the logic of the gospel shapes the way we go about preaching and living out the gospel, and yet you still want to insist you bring something to the table? You think you're special? What do you have that you have not received? Really, honestly, name one thing. Name one thing in your life that has not been given. It is not ultimately a gift from the God who owns all things. Go ahead. He just gives them a little rope. Just, just go on. Well, if they admit that maybe they received it, he's like, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? He says they are far more dependent than they realize. They are far more blessed than they realize to recognize that they came to Christ, to God with nothing, and yet they are boasting as though they are actually bringing something to the table. The reality is, brothers and sisters, friends, the logic of the kingdom of God, it cuts against our illusions of self-sufficiency, of, of our own ability, and it humbles us. It humbles us. And so he goes on in verses 8 through 13, and we're not going to spend a whole lot of time uh, 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 picking it all apart, but what Paul wants to, to show them here with, with a, a healthy dose of like sarcasm and a little bit, it's supposed to bite a little bit. He says, already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. There's... It, it stings because in some ways it's not true in the way that they want it to be true. But it is true in a real sense that in Christ they have everything that they need. This is kind of where chapter 3 ended. You've got all that you need and yet you are sitting here trying to boast as though you brought everything to the table. And then he goes on and he says, For I think, God, uh, sorry, I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death. And then he goes on to explain, he goes on to illustrate basically the contrast between what the gospel leads Paul to do in his apostleship and what it looks like for, for the Corinthians. And he's, he's recognizing for us to follow Jesus, what it has meant is that we are brought to the lowest of the low. Our ministry is shaped like this, and it is shaped like that for your good. This is a consistent theme in Paul's ministry, is that he is being poured out for the, the good of others. But the Corinthians are taking that, and they're thinking just because they're beneficiaries of Paul's ministry, they must be pretty awesome. 
It's like a profound instance of missing the point. You are benefiting from Paul's ministry, his, his suffering, his being poorly dressed. I love, it, it talks about their scum. He calls himself the scum of the world. This is what the gospel does to, to us. And we are doing this for your good. God has, God has called us to this. But you're, you're taking it as though that you are, are the ones who, who are, are deserving or benefiting from this kind of of your own sake. The implication throughout this is that they actually have a pretty sweet deal. They have been blessed by God, by these godly leaders, and yet they imagine that they are benefiting in a, in a vacuum. They are the ones who are bringing a lot to the table. Paul is saying, my ministry is one in which I am being poured out for the good of others. I am being sacrificed for the good of others. And the way he even describes this, it, it has echoes, doesn't it? of the work of Jesus for us? You know, he is sitting here saying, uh, I am I'm a fool, you are wise. We're weak, you are strong. We, you are held in honor, but we in, in disrepute. It's almost like he's, he's echoing those passages where we talk about how uh, in Isaiah, the, the suffering servant would, be, would suffer for your sakes, that Jesus would go to the cross for your benefit. He is the one who would be brought low so that you could be raised up. And Paul is saying, my ministry looks a lot like that. Why is it that you are losing sight of the fact that you are the recipients of others' sacrifice? So the implication that he gives here is, don't get puffed up. Don't imagine yourself to be something when you are nothing. My, this is Paul speaking, my, my cross-shaped ministry has brought me very low. You as the recipients of that, don't imagine yourself to be, to be something when you are nothing. So Paul's ministry is, is his cross-shaped ministry. It's a stewardship from God, and it's, it's one that sacrifices for others' good. Third, it's, it's a relationship of love. His ministry towards the Corinthians, while he's frustrated with them, he's, he's annoyed that they're losing sight of the gospel, he does not lose sight of the fact that he deeply, deeply loves them. Look at verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. For Paul, this is not merely a transaction. It's not just a transactional relationship where, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. He doesn't just, this is not an exchange of goods and services. He actually uses that analogy and distinguish him. He said, you have many guides in Christ, almost like you're going to a museum. And you pay a guy to kind of help you understand, pay you for a little while, we'll hang out for a couple hours, and then, and then see you later. He says, you got lots of guides. You've only got one father. He said, I've been with you like a father. I've loved you like a father with his children. Paul can't just let the Corinthians go. He can't just say goodbye and say, well, I tried. You guys are a hopeless cause. No, he doesn't do that. He loves them like a father with his children. So, so he's willing to chase after them. He's willing to go after them. That's why he sends Timothy, another beloved child of his in the faith. And he says, I so love you that I'm willing to send one of my best guys to come and to remind you not of how great Paul is, 
but ultimately of what, what his gospel ministry has been like for them and to them. His, his heart is broken because he has poured himself out for the Corinthians and they seem willy just, willing just to kind of drop everything and chase after the shiny new thing. It kind of, for me, has echoes of the story of the prodigal son who lives in his father's house and as soon as he's able, he's able to take his riches and just go. And it's not, the offense there isn't just that he would take his money and say, see a dad or anything. It's that he would, he so little valued his father's relationship that he would just, just take off. Once I've gotten from you what I want from you, I'll see you later. That's what the Corinthians were doing with Paul. And he's saying, I, I couldn't let you go. I've loved you like a father. And so, so he exhorts them, don't, don't forget this relationship that we've had. Don't forget the faithfulness that I've had among you and the way that I've been consistent. I display the same faithfulness in all the churches. And when he exhorts them to do that, he, he, the implication is very clear. Imitate me. Imitate the ministry that I'm, I've done with you in the past, I'm doing now, and I will continue to do in the future. Don't, don't sacrifice the, the logic of the gospel so that you can make yourself something. Instead, imitate my ministry. Come back, let's join together and pursue Christ together. This for Paul is not just a ministry assignment. This is, this is a loving relationship that he has with this people. And because he loves them, it leads to really the, the fourth feature of this cross-shaped ministry for Paul, and it's a responsibility that he has to correct them. He, he knows that even though he loves his kids, that loving them, his kids, his children in the faith, his responsibility is to not just say, you guys do whatever you want, but because he's jealous for their progress in the faith, because he cares for them, he's burdened for them, he knows that he has a responsibility not just to affirm everything that they're doing, but actually to provide some correction. There are some specific opponents in the Corinthians midst who are disparaging Paul in some way. They're pointing out how unimpressive Paul is. He says, some are arrogant as, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, and if the Lord, will, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. I love this verse because my first, I don't know about you, but the first image that comes to mind is like Paul's like rolling up his sleeves a little bit, uh, and he's like, these guys, you got, you want to go? Okay, I don't think that's what he's talking about here, but that's just what comes to my mind, and so he grabs my attention a little bit. What he's saying is that the Corinthian believers, they're, they're chasing after these leaders who are operating from basically a different gospel. They're operating from a logic that is contrary to the kingdom of God. And he's saying that, that there are people here, they're, they're boasting, they're settled in their own accomplishments and their own abilities, and so they're speaking down at Paul, they're disparaging him, they're telling the Corinthians to leave him alone. And what Paul is saying is, I'm, they've forgotten that I'm going to show up, and when I show up, I am bringing the power. But for Paul, that is not his biceps. It is the gospel. Remember what these leaders have done. They've sacrificed the gospel for their own aggrandizement. He says, We're gonna, I'm going to show up. And what the, when I show up, what they're going to realize is that they actually don't have power. All they've got is talk. I'm coming with the power of the gospel. Remember chapter 1, if you were with us, he identifies the gospel as the power of God. He says, 
Jews demand signs of power and Greeks seek wisdom. The gospel seems like foolishness to the, to the mind and to the heart that does not have the spirit, is not ready to receive it. But if God grants you the eyes to see and the spirit to receive, what you realize is the gospel itself is the wisdom of God and the power of God. When I show up, Corinthians, I am bringing the power. And it will be put on display. It will be shown to be the real thing. You're chasing after all these false things, these, these ways to, to aggrandize yourself and to make yourself seem important. When I show up, I am going to show, especially those leaders who are self-exalting, their, their folly and their foolishness is going to be put on display. The gospel, I am going to bring the gospel and it's going to be, it's going to be put on display for you. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Verse 21 is is a little bit of, uh, of, of a, a pleading with them. He says, what do you want? Should I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Implication here for Paul is, I'm ready to correct you. I'm ready to act in a fatherly way towards you. And the reality is, Christian, we, we all need this in some level. I mean, we can look at the, the Corinthians here and be like, I cannot believe they forgot the power of God in salvation. I cannot believe they failed to understand and apply the implications of the gospel to this area of their lives. But the reality is, this is what we all do when we sin, isn't it? It's a, it's a failure to know and understand and appreciate the way that the gospel is meant to play itself out. And so when I become bitter at somebody because I think that they're not paying enough attention to me or not celebrating me for, for that awesome line that I said or something like that, you know what's happening there is I'm, I'm forgetting the power of the gospel in my own heart. And I'm replacing it with a logic that says satisfaction and peace and happiness is going to be found in something else. When we chase after all manner of successes uh, or comforts in life, as a way to rescue us, you know what we're doing? We are we're replacing the logic of the gospel that says Christ is and has everything that you need. And it's saying, I mean, not everything. He doesn't have everything that I need. And we're turning the logic of the gospel on its head. What a grace then, isn't it? That the Corinthians had a father in the faith who was willing to correct them who's able to come and say, I want to realign you around this message of the gospel, and I want to show you where life and power and the kingdom is. Christian, we, we really forget all the time, don't we? But we are also very blessed to have brothers and sisters and faithful leaders in our midst who are able to point out the distinction and the, the discrepancy between the way we're living and the way that the logic of the gospel and to invite us and to implore us to, to not go chasing after things that are contrary to the gospel, but instead to align our hearts and our lives with the message of the gospel itself. This is the work of faithful cross-shaped leaders, is they are there to, to not promote themselves and say, he, he wants to say he's great and I'm nothing, I'm going to show him. That's not what Paul does. These false leaders are, are saying Paul's nothing, and Paul's going to say, I'm going to call you back to the gospel. I'm going to call you back to Christ, and I'm going to show you this is where the power of God is. Imago Dei Church, may it be that we are a church, we are a people that is, in fact, applying and living out the gospel in 
all areas of life, but also when one another or when our leaders show us the implications of the gospel and show us ways that we're misaligned, the invitation for us is to repent and to believe and to bring, return our lives to alignment with the logic and the preaching of the gospel. That ought to be our regular narrative as Christians, to constantly be aligning ourselves with the logic of the, the gospel and the kingdom. And what we get to do is we have the privilege of reaching into one another's lives and helping one another not, not think how awesome we are, but say, let me remind you of how great Jesus is and what it looks like to bring your life back into alignment with the trust and the faith and the gospel. That's the work that we get to do for one another, and that's the work of faithful, cross-centered leaders among us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for uh, your bless the blessing of having and receiving and sitting under faithful leadership but also thank you for giving us the work of ministry for one another. God, I pray that these features that marked Paul's ministry would also mark ours. God, that we would be those who uh, are so convinced of the truth of your gospel that our entire ministry towards one another and towards the lost is a proclamation and a reflection of how good you've been for us, how little we bring to the table, and yet how in Christ we have everything that we need. God, we pray that we would be able to do this with joy, knowing that we don't need to defend ourselves. God, we don't need to puff ourselves up. We have everything that we need in Christ. May that confidence root us and control us in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.